0: All right, good evening. It's good to see a few people jumping online here tonight on another Sunday evening. I love Sunday evenings. I look forward to us getting back to our Sunday evening service and having time together uh, each Sunday night. These are fun times, and we're going to keep doing it and hanging on as long as we can. We had a great service this morning for those that were here, those that were watching online. Uh, so you, you missed out if you wasn't here. I mean, there was a good sermon online, but there was good music, and a lot of people here this morning... And we had a great time and a great passage of Scripture. And I know coming into tonight's passage in Judges that there's no way we can match the passage that we studied this morning. I mean, when you're going to feed 5,000 or more, and you're going to see the the glory that is the Lord Jesus Christ in that passage, it's going to be hard to turn all the way back to the book of Judges in chapter 3 and to study what we've been studying. I mean, today was good news. It was just wonderful. It was clapping sermon Uh, Amen and sermon. It was was good stuff. And tonight we turn to judges and it's not been good so far. We've been studying when God abandons a nation, trying to get uh, an idea, an understanding of what uh, we're going through in the world we're living in right now and trying to learn from their mistakes. We can learn from uh, past centuries gone gone by. And that's what we've been trying to do. But it's been ugly. I'm just being honest. We've, We've had two sermons and it's been ugly. We've had two sermons and it's been... Uh, messy. It's been nasty. It's been grotesque. It's not been a pretty scene that we've seen in Judges so far. And I know that's kind of what you're looking at tonight, too. You're going to say, oh no, it's more bad news, bad news. But in this passage here tonight, as I was studying it, I found a little ray of hope in the midst of a very messy time for the nation of Israel. And that's the title that I gave it tonight. I just in, in passing said this this morning that if you wanted to listen tonight, it's going to be a, a little bit of hope in the midst of a mess. And that's why I titled it that. I want you to see that. When the nation is in a mess, there's a little bit of hope in the midst of that mess. Because we have a God who cleans up messes. He specializes in that. We have a God who's a savior, a deliverer, a God who comes in and and he can conquer and he can change and he can move and he can do marvelous things. So we always, in the midst of the worst messes that we could ever have, we always have a little bit of hope in the midst of our messes. So I want you to hear that tonight. I I want us to hear that in a national way, as our country is going in the wrong direction, we don't need to be so pessimistic as to say there is no hope. There's always hope in the midst of our messes. That could be you and your life right now, your life could be a mess. But there's always hope in the midst of a mess. Even for churches, sometimes churches get in a a mess, and I want you to know there's always hope in the midst of a mess. So that's what I want to look at tonight, hope in the midst of a mess. And we have hope because of the God who cleans up messes. So, if you have your Bibles, Judges chapter 3, and I'm just going to read a few verses. I'm going to cover a lot of verses, but I'm going to read just a handful for you tonight. I'm going to look at verses 12 through 14 just in, in introduction. I don't want to read the whole thing, I'm going to leave you on the edges of your seat for this story. This morning was a story that you had heard a thousand times. Tonight's a story you may have never heard before. Uh, So that we went and go from a very familiar to a very unfamiliar story. So let me read these verses to you and then we'll pray and study this passage as we look at hope in the midst of a mess. Starting there in verse 12 of Judges chapter 3, that's where we are and that's where we'll be. It says, And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon. We'll get to know who Eglon is tonight. The king of Moab against Israel. Because they had done, again, that word evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek. And he went and smote Israel and possessed the city of palm trees. You can write outside that Jericho. So the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. And then you'll see in verse 15. But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord... The Lord raised them up a deliverer named Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, a man left-handed. And by, the, him, by him the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab, and God deli- uh, begins his deliverance of the nation there. The little hope when he raises up a, a deliverer. So let's go ahead and pray, and we'll study hope in the midst of a mess. Father, we thank you for a little ray of hope. And that's what our people need tonight. This is a message for our people, the church. And God, I hope they're watching and maybe not watching right now, but maybe watching at a later time, maybe on Monday, maybe on Friday, maybe a month from now. They come back and watch this because they need hope in the midst of their the mess of their lives. And God, maybe a month from now, we'll need to hear it again as I don't know where where our nation's going. But tonight I want to, as a pastor, give our church and even myself, my children, my wife, as we can be very, very pessimistic about our nation with good reason. But God, I want us to see just a little bit of hope tonight. There is hope in the midst of our messes. So help us, God, tonight. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we all know what a mess is. I say that word mess and, and and my life seems to be one big mess. I think Steph can say that too that she spends most of her time cleaning our house because we have four kids with one another one on the way. Our house will be a mess until we're in our 60s. That's just how it's going to be. You go into bedrooms and it's a mess. You go into living rooms, it's a mess. You go into bathrooms, it's a mess. You go into every room in the house and there's a mess. It looks like a tornado has went through our house most of the time, and that's okay. We have children. It's it's, it's going to be a mess. Kids can't to be messy. Now let me ask you this question. If me and Steph didn't go behind them and clean them up, say this, if we just let them go and let them have their way, say that we went even a week, even two days, let's say even a day, and said, kids, you can have your way. Do whatever you want in your room. Do whatever you want in the house. Do whatever you want in the kitchen. Just let it go and do whatever you want to do. Do what's right in your own eyes. And me and Steph didn't come along behind them and clean them up. And Steph didn't have a vacuum cleaner in her hand. Pretty much all the time if we didn't do that and we just sit back and let them go and we had no restraint on them whatsoever how do you think our house would look it would it would be a worse mess than what it already is that's just how it's going to be it, our, our boys would go in and just throw their clothes wherever they want to throw them I mean it's untelling what the bathroom would look like the kitchen would the, the fridge would probably never be closed and we'd have things just thrown in the fridge and it'd be all over the place it would be a mess if we let them go it's 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 loving and gracious of us that we don't let them go and we clean up after them and teach them to clean up for themselves. And you say, Josh, why are you talking to us about a mess? Because our nation right now, I'm not talking about in my home, I'm talking about across this land, we are in what I would describe as a mess. We've made a massive mess in our country. And I believe that we had these messes in our country throughout the centuries, throughout the ages, and God has come along and, and cleaned up after us and, and He's tidied up here and he's tidied up there and he's used the church in places and in times and he's cleaned up after us but I think we're at a point now where God has taken the restraints away and we are in Romans 1 where God has let us go and he's saying all right you guys make all the mess that you want it's on you and we're seeing the uh how this is working itself out we've made a massive mess god has let us go there's no restraints he puts restraints on society and i just want to give you a few of these things the restraints that he puts on us to keep us from getting in a spiritual mess he gives a nation conscience we're in our minds, we know right from wrong. We know we shouldn't murder. We know we shouldn't hate. We know we shouldn't be prejudiced. We know we shouldn't loot and riot and destroy and kill and steal. We know we shouldn't do those things in our conscience. But when our conscience goes away, we do whatever's right in our own eyes. And there's no conscience there to stop us. Conscience is going away. He gives us a A family, a father and a mother, to put restraint upon the children, to obey them and to do what they say, to hold them back, so they don't go out and do silly and foolish things. And the family has been destroyed. The family in America is no longer. Restraint number two, gone. The church is supposed to be the restraint of a nation. And we have a church that's watered down, superficial, shallow. That's not preaching the gospel, but is preaching some kind of whether it be a social gospel or or some other gospel that is not the gospel at all. And they're not they're not preaching on sin and repentance, and, and they're not preaching Christ and Him crucified. And that restraint that the church is supposed to be is falling away. And, and I believe the last restraint that's left in a nation is its governing body, the law enforcement, and that is left there to keep people from going too far, for to keep them from crossing that line where. They They won't go into chaos, complete and utter mess. And now we see in our nation where we're even going to take that away. No family, no church, no conscience, no, no, no law enforcement. No wonder we're in the midst of a mess. God has given us up, as Romans 1 said, to uncleanness. God has given us up to vile affections. God has given us up to a reprobate mind where you look out today in our nation and you say, none of this makes any sense whatsoever to anybody who is right-minded. God has given us up. That's the only logical conclusion. That's the only biblical conclusion. That's the only spiritual conclusion as we look out. God has given up this nation. God has let us go. God has, He's taken away the restraints and here we are doing whatever we want to do and it's a complete and utter total mess. So now we ask, who is there to clean up that mess? Who can we look to that specializes in cleaning up messes? Who is it that can come along behind us and fix everything that we have broken? And we're not asking who made the mess. We know that's us. We're asking who cleans up the mess. We need someone. The question is who? We don't need a social organizer, we don't need a new politician. That'll be the answer that a lot of people will give you. Let's vote somebody new into office let's let's vote in a republican let's vote in a democrat let's do, you know make all these structural changes in our nation and and you can do that you can vote however you want to vote and you can uh, uh, create any kind of new order that you want to create but that's not going to fix this mess I want to show you tonight who it is that fixes these messes. Because as we turn to Judges, and we've seen so far in Judges 1, 2, and even in the early parts of chapter 3, Israel is, has made a mess. And it's nothing new. They are excellent at making messes. They're like a bunch of children. Really. They, they make messes one after the other after the other. The whole book of Judges is one big mess. And when they did, they had a God who specialized in cleaning up their messes. They would make a mess in Judges chapter 2. God would clean it up. They'd make a mess in Judges chapter 3, and God would clean it up. They'll make a mess in this passage here tonight, and God will clean it up. God was their deliverer, and that's who He was in the Old Testament. He was known as, get this, their God, the Israelites, was known as their deliverer, or their Savior. It's who He was. It's who His character is. It's who His nature is. It's what God is, and who God is. He is a deliverer. He is a Savior by nature. We talked about this morning that he is a provider by nature. And tonight I want to show you he is a deliverer or a savior by nature. It's who he is. He is a shepherd that comes in and provides for his people, but also delivers his people from evil. He is a king who delivers his people from the threats of evil kings. That's who he is. I got some verses to read to you to prove it. I wrote these down right before I come up here, printed them off. 1 Chronicles 16, 35, and say ye, save us, O God, of our salvation, and gather us together and deliver us from the heathen, that we may give thanks to thy holy name and glory in thy praise. Deuteronomy 33 says, happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, O people saved by the Lord. Psalm 7, 1 says, O Lord my God, in thee do I put my trust, save me from all mine enemies. Last one, Psalm 106, they forgot their Savior. The one who had done marvelous works for them in Egypt. Over and over and over, the people of Israel knew their God, not as a vicious, unloving, hostile God, but as a saving God. And you turn to the New Testament, it's the same thing. Open it it up, Matthew chapter 1. And they shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Our God is a saving God. Our God is a delivering God. Our God is a conquering God. Our God by his nature and by his character is a God who comes in and helps his people. That's what I want to show you tonight. Because our God has not changed. He's still the same God today that He was then. And in our mess that we are in in right now, He can personally save you, deliver you. He can personally get you out of the mess that you're in right now. He can save us nationally. He can save us corporately. He can save us. There's only one place to go to. There's only one Savior, one Deliverer, one who can rescue us and clean up after our messes. And it is our God. And each one of these episodes, each one of these judges is there to prove that God is our only hope in the midst of our messes. So let's look at that tonight. I want to show you again the hope in the midst of a mess. And this is a nasty mess that they find themselves in here tonight. I'm going to give you three points as I work our way through several verses. And I want you to see that. God is our only hope in the midst of a mess. Turning to Him. So number one, I want to show you. This is how it always is. I want to show you the undeserving people. The undeserving people, starting there in verse 12, or you can look at verse 11. It says in verse 11 that if he was with us last week, and the land had rest 40 years. Peace for 40 years. Everything was good for 40 years. That's a generation. And then the last judge, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And as soon as he died, look what they did. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. That's a very important phrase where it says they did evil again in the sight of the Lord. They did right in their own eyes, they were doing what they thought was right. In their eyes, in their thinking, in their way of looking at things, it was right. But in God's eyes, it was evil. And that's that's the world we're living in right now. People are doing what they think is right. They're doing what they think is okay. They think they're on the right side. The people in our nation today think everything's okay. And what they're doing and what they're believing and how they're living, it's okay. It's right in their eyes. But what they don't know because they're not looking at the Word of God is that it's evil in the sight of God. Here's a quote for you that I want you to grab onto. God will not bless a nation that comes up with its own rules and that's where we are today we're doing what's right in our own eyes we're following our own set of rules but God will not bless a nation that does whatever it wants to do they done evil in the sight of God it seems to be a pattern you can see it in Judges 2.11 if you're following with us and the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord 2.11 3.7 Same thing, and the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. You want to go with me to the same verse we just read? And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. Judges chapter 4, and I won't go any further than this. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. It's almost like they never learn. It's a tiresome reality that it will keep getting old as we go through the book of Judges. That they continually, over and over and over, God will deliver, God will clean up their mess, God will save, God will conquer, and then the very next day, they do evil in the sight of the Lord. Why do they do that? It shows us our natural drift, the way that we naturally go as people. We don't naturally go towards doing right. By birth, by nature, by will we want to do what's wrong we want to go the way of evil we want to go the, the way of wrong that's what we do as individuals we are as theologians would say we are depraved people that's where we go that's where our minds tend to go in thinking that's where our desires go that's where our lusts go we are all going the evil direction if we if we had an angel on each shoulder and there's a good one over here saying do what's right and there's one an evil one over here saying do what's wrong we as people always have the tendency to to listen to the dark side, to listen to the, the wrong side, and to do what's wrong. That's why they continually follow this cycle and this pattern, is because they're always aimed at, they're always in their nature going towards wrong. That's who we all are. Don't think we're any better than they are. As soon as things get better in our nation, I'll say this at the end of the sermon, most likely when things, if things get better, we're gonna naturally be going towards evil again. It's who we are. It's it's what we do. That's why God gives us the church as Christians. That's why He puts the Holy Spirit within us. That's why He gives us our word. He knows our natural inclination is to do evil and to go the wrong direction. So He gives us those, those guardrails to keep us on the right path. That's where we go personally. That's where we'll go nationally. No nation will naturally go towards the right. So that's the direction they went. That's where they were, were apt to go. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And when they do evil, God punishes them. Again, this is just a pattern. You're going to sit there and say, Josh, I feel like you just preached this sermon last week. They did evil. God punished. They cried out. God delivered. I mean, it's a pattern over and over and over. It's a pattern they had. It's a pattern that we have. We do evil. We God punishes. We cry out. God delivers. I'm going to show you the key to not following that pattern towards the end of the sermon. But watch what God does. He punishes them. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And look, here's the punishment. And the Lord, this is an unexpected punishment. It doesn't make sense to me why he does this. It's not how we do it. It's out of character for God. This is not what we think God should do. We think when God should punish somebody, I said this last week, that it should be the lightning bolts from from heaven punishing people. It should be a a tornado that comes in and wipes them out. It should be disease and and pestilence and and all these, these crazy things that we say, oh, that's the mighty hand of God. But Sometimes God does things that surprises us. Sometimes God does things that shock us. Sometimes God does things that challenges the way we think. And I love it when God challenges us. Look what he says. He strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil on the side of the Lord. He strengthened Israel's enemy. He chose sides and he chose the side of the enemy. When he says strengthened, I feel like he gave them muscle. It's a word that means he gave them power. It's a word that means He gave them weapons. It's a word that means He gave them opportunity. It's a word that means He gave them higher ground. That God gave them the opportunity and the power and the strength to defeat His own people. God raised up an enemy to defeat the nation of Israel to punish them. Just as a way of questioning, do you think God made... Do, may punish America a little bit different than what we think. That he may raise up our enemies and strengthen them against us in order to punish us. That's what he did here. And it says, and they smote Israel and took over the city of palm trees, which is Jericho. God's not indifferent here. He favored the other side. That's how he punished them, by raising up. And it's not just that he punished them, he embarrassed them. This is where you've got to challenge the way you think about God. He didn't just punish them by raising up their enemies. Watch this, he embarrassed them in this way. I want you to see this. This is important. Here's how God punished them. He embarrassed them. He raised up Moab. Okay, That's the nation that that came up against them. And they were half-breed, hated enemies of Israel. Your arch rival, the team you don't want to lose to. I mean, you see, in, in some sports, it's like okay, the, the Cowboys and the Redskins, and and they go head to head, and they're arch rivals. And I've heard guys in this church say that are Cowboys fans. I would I would go one and 16, 1 and fifteen in in the season as long as we don't lose to the Redskins. As long as we don't lose to our arch enemy. God raised up and strengthened their archenemy, their rival. And not just that it was Moab, but they took Jericho. The city that Joshua fought the battle of, and the walls came tumbling down. The city that they had just took in, in the book of Joshua, and now it comes out of their hands and back into the hands of the Moabites. This was their city, the city of palm trees. You don't hear this, you hear Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, but you rarely hear anything about Edlon fighting the next battle of Jericho. So they took Jericho away. But here's the most embarrassing part. It was their most hated enemy, it was their most cherished city, and it was the most embarrassing leader that you could ever lose to. It wasn't that they lost to a mighty warrior, they lost to a slow, lazy Fat man. You say, Josh, you can't say that. That's not politically correct. It comes straight out of the Bible. Look at verse 17. And he brought present unto Eglon, the king of Moab, and Eglon was a very fat man. That's the King James Version. He was an incredibly obese man. He was chunky. He was husky. He was, as my granny would say, a little fat around the ears. He was a big man. Google this king, verse 17, Eglon. Look him up. The first picture that came up when I googled Eglon was of the Hutt from the Star Wars movies. He was a massive fat man. So this is again embarrassing. He is a, a big man. A big, slow, lazy fat man. So they, they're losing to their worst enemy. They're, they're losing their, their greatest city and they're losing to a slow, lazy, fat man. God didn't just punish them and defeat them. God didn't just strengthen their enemy against them. God gave them an enemy that completely embarrassed them. It wasn't a mighty warrior with bulging biceps that defeated them. It was a slow, lazy, fat man. It's a bad, bad punishment. And it says, and the children of Israel served Eglon. You guys can call him Fat Man if you want to, the king of Moab for eighteen years. That was a miserable eighteen years. They were oppressed. They were in hardship. They were in their own city. He was cruel. He had absolute rights. He could do whatever he wanted to to those people. He could take their children away if he wanted to take their children away. He could train the kids in the Moabite ways and not the Israelite ways. It was a miserable 18 years. God made them miserable. It's a good thing when God makes his people miserable because when his people are miserable, The very next thing they do in verse 15, and when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. God will make you miserable. God will bring you to your knees. He'll take you to places where you're defeated. He'll take you to places where you're embarrassed. He'll take you to places where it's the lowest of the lows in order to get you to look up and to cry out to him. That's what he done to Israel. That might be what He's doing to America right now. It is an embarrassing time where we're defeated, we're struggling, we're in a mess. And that's what this is. These 18 years, that was a a complete and and total and utter mess that they were in. And and they're sitting there in that mess, having no way of getting themselves out. And they realize, we must cry out to God now. For, For us, for our children, for the next generation, we must cry out. So that's what they do. They sin and do evil. God punishes them in the most embarrassing and messy way that you could possibly be defeated. I want you to see that. That's the worst way you could be defeated. In that way, by those people, by that man for that long, it was messy. And finally, they cry out in verse 15. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. Unto who? The Lord. They knew that the Lord was their deliverer. They knew that the Lord was their Savior. They knew the Lord was their only hope. They couldn't get themselves out of this mess. Only God could get them out of this mess. They cried unto the Lord. That's who they turned to. They're undeserving of this deliverance, but it says, and God hears and raises up a deliverer. Why does He do that? Not because they deserve it, but because He is a delivering God. Not because of who they are, but because of who He is. If God delivers this nation, it won't be because we deserve it, it will be because He is a great God. He's a saving God. He's a delivering God. He's a conquering God. That's who He is. That's the hope. We have a God, not because we're good, not because we're moral, not because we deserve it, but because we have a God who wants to deliver his people. And God hears them. Again, not, I want to keep repeating that, not because they deserve it. This is the undeserving people. They keep doing evil. This pride isn't even genuine. Genuine. This is a cry of pain. Not repentance. And God still says. It's my nature. It's my character. I'll do it. Because of who he is. If he delivers us. It will be because of who he is. So watch this. Point number two. We saw the undeserving people. They did evil. And God embarrassed them. And now. The unexpected deliverance, the undeserving people turns into the unexpected deliverance. It says in verse fifteen, and I want to show you this guy. When the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord, and that, that's that, that. I think twelve times in this in this short passage, it's the Lord, the Lord. It's like the writer of Judges wants us to see who it is that delivered them. It, it, he wants us to, to focus our attention on the Lord, the Deliverer, the Savior, the one who conquers. He's the one who did it. So it says there, he cried, they cried unto the Lord, and the Lord raised up a Deliverer. Who's the Deliverer? Ehud. <laughs> this is a great guy. Who is he? he? This is the man God raises up. He's judge number two in this book. Deliverer number two. I think out of twelve. And he is one of the most unlikely of judges. Who is he? Look what it says. He's a son of Gera. He's a Benjamite. And he's a left-handed man. That's all the information we have on him. I think it's, I told my kids earlier this week, it's supposed to be funny when we read that. He's a Benjamite and he's left-handed. You say, I I told my kids that this week, and I said, said, get this, God raised up a Benjamite left-handed man. And I started giggling and laughing, and they're sitting there saying, why in the world are you laughing at that? A a left-handed Benjamite? That's not funny. But to Israel, when they saw Benjamite left-handed, they would laugh as as, as loud as they could laugh. It was hilarious to them. You say, why is a left-handed Benjamite funny? Because Benjamite, Benjamin, means son of my right hand. And he was a left-handed man. So he was, and I wrote this down, he was a left-handed man from the son of my right hand. He came from a right-handed people, and he was left-handed. You say, that's not funny at all. Well, it, it, it was to them. They saw the irony of this, son of my right hand with a, with a left hand. That's, that's who he was. And he was not just a, it was funny, but it was a disadvantage. Left-handed in that time, and I no offense to anybody that's left-handed, but it was to be disabled. It's hard to fight in battle if he was left-handed. Everybody walking around with their swords on this side to pull it out. And left-handed people would have to pull from this side. You know how a disadvantage it is for left-handed people today? I mean, you ever tried to sit in a desk for made for right-handed people? And there's left-handed people trying to write in it? And they're sitting there and, and they smudge everything. And I'm thinking of one left-handed person in particular that I don't know might be watching this. We won't mention Steph's sister, but they smudge everything. I mean, people, it's a world made for, for right-handed people and, and left-handed people are at a disadvantage. I, I looked it up this week and I think maybe 10% of the world is left-handed. Our first president that was left-handed, I believe, was Garfield, and he was assassinated four months after he was inaugurated. And I mean, there's a disadvantage to being left-handed. So this guy was a disadvantaged, disabled, Warrior. An unlikely man from an unlikely place with an unlikely disadvantage. This was God's man that He raised up. This is the least likely man that anybody would ever look to to help a nation. This guy's our deliverer. That's what they're looking at right here. Saying, this guy? Left-handed man from a right-handed tribe. This guy? He's disadvantaged. He's left-handed. A left-handed assassin? We've never heard of such. Why would God raise up this little left-handed man? That's how God works. God often uses the most unlikely people to do his work. I'll give you an example. Goliath looked at little David and said, Ha, who's this little man? Right before a stone hit him between the eyes. The world looked at a 13-year-old Jewish girl and said, will the Messiah come from her womb? People have looked at for centuries at a carpenter from Nazareth and said, he'll save people from their sins. They've looked at his fishermen, a little ragtag bunch, and said, these guys? They looked at a little priest persecuting Christians. This guy will write most of the New Testament. Only God would raise up the most unlikely men to do his work. I'll even go further than this and really make it applicable to us. Just for me. Who would have ever thought that God would have used a farm farmer from McMinnville, Tennessee? Where? Where? Exactly. To preach the gospel to a young boy like me. Who would have ever thought that God would use a quiet little boy from the mountains of Southwest Virginia to stand up and preach the gospel in a church like this? Only God. But that's what God does. Is, does. God works in Unlikely ways to deliver his people. Who knows who God might be raising up in America right now? And we may be looking at saying, who in the world is that? But God uses the unlikely men to do his work. And it's not just the man. Look, look at the plan. And I've got to work my way through this because that's what God does. It's an unexpected deliverance because it's an unexpected man and it's an unexpected plan. We've seen the man. He's a left-handed. He's he's disadvantaged. He's not what anybody would expect. I mean, nobody's going to guess this guy is going to deliver the nation. Who is this guy? Who is Ehud? I mean, you guys, raise your hand if you ever heard of Ehud. I don't see that hand. I don't see that hand. We've not heard of Ehud. So watch what he does. And I'm just going to read through this story, if you guys want to follow with me, at how God delivers. We've seen the unexpected man. Let me show you the unexpected plan of how God d- delivers his people. And, and I think you'll enjoy this, maybe if you've not been reading ahead. But it says, when the children of Israel, verse 15, I've got to read all the way to verse 31, so you guys better just buckle up. But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up and delivered, Ehu, the son of Girah, a Benjamite, a man left-handed. And that's why it says left handed. He's not just telling us that to tell us what handy he is. He's saying it's a disadvantage, it's unlikely. And by him, the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. They had to pay taxes or tributes. Each year, maybe more than that, more than one time a year. That's who Eglon was. He was, he was sitting up there in his, his little throne room. And he made everybody pay taxes to him, pay tributes. So they wouldn't bring in gold and silver. You know what, you know what the fat man would have them bring? They'd have to bring vegetables. They'd have to bring, uh, things out of their, that, that they had farmed and, and their crops. So they're bringing, that's what they did. They got him to take a tribute to him. They brought him to, to, to take baskets to him of food. So they sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. But Ehud made a dagger, which had two edges, of a cubit length. And he had girded under his ra- raiment upon his right thigh. About a 15 to 8 inch sword. And he doesn't put it, this is a concealed weapon, he doesn't put it. He's going, again, he's taking this tribute, these taxes to the king. And he doesn't put it where most people put it. Most people are right handed. Right handed. And they're going to have their sword on their left side. So when somebody pats them down as they go in to see the king, they're going to pat them down right here because nobody expects a left-handed man to have a sword over here. So he takes his sword, his little 15 to 8 inch dagger, and he puts it on his right side and nobody checks for anything there. This is unlikely. We don't have to check that side. He's not going to have a sword there. Nobody would send a left-handed assassin into the throne room. That'd be crazy. (laughs) That's what God does. So watch what happens. Verse 17. And he brought the present unto Eglon, king of Moab. And Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had made an end to offer the present, he sent away the people that bear the present. But he himself turned again from the quarries, those are idols, that were by Gilgal, and said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king, who said, keep silence. He said, hush. Actually, in the Hebrew, it is hush. Hush is an old biblical Hebrew word. So when you tell your kids to hush, you're speaking Hebrew. Hush. So Ehud looks at Eglon. Keep these in in line here. Lefty says to Fatty, I shouldn't say that. I've got a secret for you. That's how I'm going to call them that. Now I think that's a good way to keep them in line. Lefty says to Fatty, I've got a secret. So Fatty sends everybody out of the throne room and says, I want to hear this secret. Lefty might be telling me about some kind of secret uprising that he's hearing about, that they're going to try to take me over, or he might have an extra snack for me. I don't know. So Lefty gets Fatty alone in the throne room, and everybody else clears out. And they hadn't checked him for his dagger. Because they didn't think he'd have one on his right side. Watch this. So he says, hush. And all that stood by him went out from him. And Ehud came unto him and was sitting in a summer parlor, which he had for himself alone. And Ehud said, I have a message from God unto thee. Watch this. I have a message from God for thee. And the king stood up. He arose out of his seat. And when he arose out of his seat, was visible this big old belly that he had. Walking towards Lefty was Fatty wanting to hear this secret from God. Hush, oh, shh, tell me. I want to hear it. God had gotten Lefty alone in the throne room with Fatty all by himself, and he had a concealed weapon. And when he walks up next to him with no guards, no security anywhere, just them two in the summer parlor. God's doing this. God's working this out. God's delivering. He walks up towards him. His guard is down. Shh, tell me what the secret is. And when he does, lefty. Look what it says. And Ehud put forth his left hand and he took the dagger from his right thigh and he thrust it into Fatty's belly. And the shaft, the, the handle also went in after the blade. And the fat closed up upon the blade so that he couldn't even get the dagger out of his belly. He stabbed him all the way in and couldn't even get that 15 to 18 inch dagger out of his belly. It went all the way into his belly. That's why the pictures of him are so grotesque and big. And watch this. I've got to keep this clean. That's why I said this is messy. This is unexpected from God. That's the the point, the unexpected deliverance. God is putting all this together exactly as it needs to be. Behind the scenes, a left-handed man that no one would ever anticipate. A little short dagger that nobody checked to see if it was on his right thigh. A secret that he cleared out the whole room so there's no security. Fat man stands up and he pulls the knife out, the sword out, and gets it right into his gut. And even this messy part right here is laid out in the plan of God. Watch what it says. And he couldn't draw the dagger out of his belly and the dirt came out. King James says dirt to keep it PG. The Hebrew would say "refuse." It would say Dung. My kids would say, (laughs) Pooh came out. I'll stop it at that. Messy. And you say, Why does it tell us that? Watch. God is putting together every single one of the details. This dirt came out for a reason. Watch. This is how He's going to get away. God uses the dirt. To get Lefty out of the throne room. Because, I mean, you think about it. If he stabs the king and all of a sudden he walks out the door and they're all standing there and and behind him is a a king who's been stabbed and killed, now they're going to get him and kill him. How is God going to get this left-handed assassin out of the throne room? He uses the dirt. (laughs) And Ehud, Lefty, verse 23, went forth through the porch. And he shut the doors of the parlor upon him and he locked them. So he leaves the door and turns around and locks it behind him. And when he was gone out, his servants came. And when they saw that, behold, the doors of the parlor were locked, they said, surely he covereth his feet in his summer chamber. Left, he shut the door behind him. And instead of going in to check on him, they said, we smell something in there. I bet he's out there in the summer chamber where there's a breeze. And he, the King James says, covers his feet. What he's actually doing is, in, they, th- they say he's in the restroom, whereas Emma would say, he's in the potty. So they leave him in there. We'll leave him alone. Nobody wants to interrupt the king while he's doing that. We smell what's going on in there. We'll leave him alone. Let him have his time. Let the door stay locked. And as, as long as the doors, as long as they give him to wait, that gives Lefty time to get away. God uses the dirt, the smell, in order to get his left-handed assassin away from the throne room. Look at what it says in verse 25. And the servants tarried there until they were ashamed. They were embarrassed. They are sitting there saying, how long is he going to be in there? I know this is messy. This is dirty. And God is using all this to deliver His people. It's unexpected. God's working in ways that we would never imagine. A left-handed assassin. The stabbing of a fat man. The dirt coming out. The smell from the breezy room. All of it to deliver His people. Because God does work in the midst of a mess. Look what it says. They tarried there until they was embarrassed by it. <laughs> We're going to have to open that door. He's been in there too long. It gave left-handed assassin enough time to get away. And finally, they said, we've got to check on him. There's something wrong. And behold, he opened, he opened not the door of the parlor. Therefore, they took a key and opened them. And behold, their Lord was fallen down dead on the earth. And lefty escaped while they tarried and passed by the idols and escaped. Do you see that? How God! Put, I know you're sitting there saying, this is, this is a crazy story. Why is Josh telling us this? God is using all these things in order to deliver his people. That's how God works. That's what God does. I love that. It was an unlikely man chosen by God. It was an unlikely plan also chosen by God in order to save his people out of a mess. And that's exactly how unusual salvation is. It's what God does. I can say this for me. What kind of mess did God find me in? Messed up man. And God in the midst of my mess delivered me. Maybe you were in a mess when he saved you. Maybe you're in a mess now. God is not afraid of messes. He works in messes and uses messes to accomplish his purposes. This is a mess. They were in a mess before. He used a mess in the, in, the, in the middle, an unexpected mess. Where did he find you at? Where did he deliver you from? What mess were you in? Who did he use to reach you? An unexpected man with an unexpected plan? That's the whole point of Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound, saved a mess like me. The Israelites would look at this story and they wouldn't say, Lefty killed fatty. They would say, Look how God saved his people. Look how God delivered his people. Look how God got us out of that mess. He used a left-handed man to kill a fat man in a messy bathroom scene in order to help him get away. Maybe we ought to look back at our lives and say, look at the mess God has got us out of. I can look back over and over in my life, mess after mess, even after I'm saved, mess, and God gets me out of it mess and God gets me out of it I've seen our church at times over the years not much but there's been messes there's been fights and squabbles and splits and trouble and anger and just the nasty I mean you, even before I came here some of you that's on Facebook live right now would say there's been messes at West End this does been it's been messy at times But here we are and we look back and say, wow. And some of it may be as messy and nasty as this is. And you look back and say, wow, look how God got us out of that mess. Look who He used to get us out of that mess. Our God is a God who cleans up messes. He's cleaned up messes in the church. He's cleaned up messes in our lives. Don't you think, and that's where I'm going with this, that He can't clean up a mess in our nation. He can do it. This is the hope in the midst of a mess that if God can do this, He can do this. If God can save this, He can save anybody. God works in the messes. We ought to marvel at every step in the plan of God that He pieced together to get us where we are i said that and I'm going to move on. This is dirty, messy, nasty, every last bit of it. But we ought to marvel at the steps God used. He raised up a left-handed man because a right-handed man couldn't have done it. He got him in there with a secret shh, hush, hush. I wrote that down, hush. He stood up right in front of him. Who would have thought the sword would have went all the way in and pierced what it pierced in order to cause what came out to come out? Door locked. Servants waiting. Embarrassed. Not wanting to go in. Exact amount of time for them to wait in order for Lefty to get away before they found Fatty laying there dead. Can you look at the outline of the details, the story of your salvation and of your life and see how God has used certain people in certain ways and certain situations and certain scenarios to get you through the messes that he's gotten you through? My kids are going to find themselves in messes someday and they need to know that there is a God who works in and cleans up our messes. Again, this is dirty, messy, nasty, every bit of it. And why is this? Because the more gory it was, the more glory God gets. Let me say that again. The more gory it is, the more glory God gets. So we have no idea what God could be up to right now in our nation that we don't even see. We don't deserve it, but God can do it. And he can work right in the midst of a mess. He could be raising up a preacher right in the middle of these protests. We don't know. We know we don't deserve it, and we know God can do it. Last point, point, I'll close. I've got five minutes. This point is real quick. We've seen the undeserving people, and they were. We've seen the unexpected deliverance. Now I want to show you the unfortunate ending. It starts out good in Verse 27. And it came to pass when he was come home, that's lefty, when he was come home, you'll always remember lefty and fatty. I mean, I think this will be a sermon you'll never forget. Whether you get anything out of it or not, you'll always remember that, even if it offended you. And it came to pass when he was come that he blew a trumpet in the mountain of Ephraim, and the children of Israel went down with him. He come back, escaped, got away, came back, and he's blowing a trumpet. He's announcing to everybody. He went down from the mountain, and he said before them, he said unto them, follow after me. Come after me. He's he's gathering an army. For the Lord has delivered your enemies from the Moabites into your hands. He's he's delivered us. He's he's saved us. He didn't say, I did it. He didn't say, Lefty did it. He didn't say, look what I did. He didn't tell them the story of how Lefty killed Fatty. He came back and said, look what our God has done. God has delivered us. And they went down after him, and they took the fords of Jordan toward Moab, and suffered not a man to pass over. And they slew, look this, they win, they slew of Moab at that time. Ten thousand men. And I love this description here. And they weren't fatty. What were they? They were lusty. You see that? They were all lusty and men of valor. And you say, what in the world does lusty and men of valor mean? These were not fat, lazy men. These, these, these warriors that went to fight against Moab were lusty. They were robust. They were valiant. They were stout, strong, and big. They had the biceps. They had the swords. They went and destroyed 10,000 men of Moab. And there escaped not a man. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land had rest 80 years. Wow. Peace, stability, prosperity. The undeserving people. The unexpected deliverance. God delivered them. You say, but you called that the unfortunate ending. It says in chapter 4, verse 1. And the children of Israel again did evil on the side of the Lord when lefty died. Lefty died and they did evil again. And the pattern just keeps going. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. That reigned in Hazor and the captain of whose host was Sisera which dwell in Heresheth and the Gentiles. And you see down there in verse 4, and Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lebedoth, she judged Israel at that time. God raised up another, which we'll talk about next time. Just continuing the pattern, continuing the cycle. But each one gets messier, each one gets worse, until we reach the end, and Samson is the worst of the worst. And the judges at that point, the nation of Israel, does whatever's right in its own eyes, and God just leaves them. So what's the lesson we learn here? This unfortunate ending that God delivered them and they go right back to their old ways. What's the point in all this? I'll give you two. There's a refusal here to learn that when Lefty died, there was nobody to stand up and say, let's read our history. Look back and see what happened 80 years ago. Let's not repeat this pattern again. Let's not follow this same cycle. Let's read history. And that's something this generation in our time today doesn't do. I can say that as a nation, we don't read history. We don't know where we come from. We don't know the battles we fought. We don't know the the warriors that won the battles. We don't know the generals. We don't know the captains. We don't know our ancestors. We don't know about World War One and World War Two. We don't know about Vietnam. We we don't know about these things. We 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 don't read about these things. We 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 just look over these things like they're not there. We don't know where we came from. We don't know the battles we fought. We don't know uh, the the things that we did in the past that we need to learn from today. And we're in danger of repeating those things because we have a refusal to learn. I'll say this as a church, it's the same thing. Most people only know enough church history as far back as when their church began or when they started church. And the reason there's so much uh, craziness and messes in churches today is because they don't know church history. What we're going through today would be solved if we would just read the past. We're not going through anything they didn't go through. We're not fighting any battles they didn't fight. And if we knew what they did and then what they fought and how they stood, we wouldn't have to fight the battles we fought today. We would learn from their mistakes instead of making our own all over again. It's a refusal to learn from the past. Somebody should have said, wait a second, remember lefty killing fatty? Don't do it again. They didn't learn their lesson. They fall into the same old pattern, the same old sin. Lesson number one, we need to learn from the past. Lesson number two, and this is important. We need to repent. That's their problem They never really gave up their sin. They cried to God, but they didn't repent to God. They never let it go. They never threw it away. That's why it mentions the idols there twice. The quarries twice. The idols are there. Everywhere you turn, the idols are still there. It's time to get rid of the idols. It's time to get rid of the sin. Repent of our sin. If we don't get rid of it, if we don't turn our back on it, it will jump up and bite us the second we turn around. A refusal to learn and a refusal to repent is what leads directly into this pattern and cycle of sin. This is a sad, tragic ending, but it's exactly what we've fallen into. Let me ask this and I'll close. What if? This is a good what if. What if God answered all of our prayers right now? We prayed this morning, we'll pray tonight. We'll pray in the morning, we'll pray tomorrow. What if God answered our prayers? And he delivered our nation tonight. And he healed our land tonight. And he cleaned up our mess tonight. And all the problems that we have in a nation was gone. And we were in revival. And people were being saved. And lives were being changed. And we we were prosperous again. We had peace again. And the pandemic was over. And we had our freedom to go and do what we wanted to do again. And, when, and instead of there being five people here tonight, there would be a church full of people here tonight. What if God answered our prayers? What if God answered our prayers? Now, let, let me ask you this, if he did it. Now, let me answer this. I want you to think about it. How long until we forget God and we get back to doing whatever we want to do again? What if God stopped the pandemic? What if God stopped the protests and the prejudice? What if there was peace again in our nation? And they come on the TV tomorrow and say, we fixed the virus. It's over. Football's back on Friday nights. We might spend one Sunday saying, praise God. But our natural drift towards evil says we'd be right back to doing the same old, same old. Whatever we want to do, whatever's right in our own eyes, like that. And we cry. Got to answer. Do evil. Because we refuse to learn and we refuse to repent. I think it's trying for the. The church to cry out in repentance and say, God, whether you answer us or not, we're going to change our ways. We'll prioritize what we need to prioritize, we'll change where we need to change, we'll do what we need to do, whether you deliver us or not. On our faces before God in repentance. And it's God's nature. To answer us. And that is a little bit of hope in the midst of our big old mess. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the little bit of hope you've given us tonight. Or me. I tend to be pessimistic, and you know that. It's my tendency to say, I throw up my hands and say, there's too far gone now, it's over. Nothing we can do. God, I'm glad you brought us to this passage this week, providentially, to show us a little bit of hope. Show me a little bit of hope in the midst of a mess, a little bit of light in the midst of darkness. And God, I'll pray tonight that you would. I I repent. I'm, I'm, I'm one that can easily get lazy, get complacent. Follow my own path and do my own thing, have the wrong priorities. So, God, wherever I need to change, whatever I need to do, wherever I need to repent, show me and I'll do it, whether you deliver us or not. I want this pandemic and I want the chaos that's in our nation to drive me to my knees in repentance. And I want it to do the same for our church and I want it to do the same for our nation. Not in grief. Sorrow, but in true godly repentance. Whether you heal our land or not. But God, I also pray that you would heal our land. That you would bring peace and prosperity to our nation again. And let it start with your people. Across this land tonight, God, protect our people. Bring peace to hearts. And God, please clean up after this mess. We don't deserve it, but we know that's your nature and that's your character. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.